This is Ford Exchanges by Neom. What's next in moving money around the world, one global conversation at a time. Hello, and welcome to Forward Exchanges from Neom. We know you're trying to stay on top of fast emerging changes in global payments when it's all you can do to keep up with your day-to-day challenges. Hi, I'm Siobhan O'Neill-Schwenk, and on this podcast, we are joined by trailblazers and veteran players to investigate the real driving forces that are modernizing money movement and what's building, or blocking, its momentum around the world. Whether you're new to global payments, a digital transformation veteran, or you just want to hear some great advice on what strategies create momentum in the global digital payments revolution, then this is the podcast for you. Today, I am joined by Robin Gandhi, Chief Product Officer at Neom, as well as Reed Lutanen, Executive Director at the U.S. Faster Payments Council and Strategic Advisory Board member at Identify. Together, we'll discuss the growth of the real-time payment market in the U.S. and what we can learn from places like Singapore, Malaysia, and Brazil. Welcome to the show, everybody. We are back for season two. Robin, I would love for you to open up by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, no, thanks for having me here. I've been running the product side of the org here at Neom for a little close to a year and a half. Been in the payment space for a while. I was at Adyen for about six years from when we kind of got things moving in San Francisco. But yeah, it's been an exciting time to be here at Neom. We've done a lot. We've changed a lot. And it's going to be an exciting few years coming up from here. But it'll, it'll be good to have this conversation and talk about some of these trends that we're seeing. Reed, I am so excited to have you here. And I know that this is going to be old hat for you as you are also the creator and host of the U.S. Faster Payments Council's own podcast, Off the Rails. And for those of our listeners who don't know you yet, tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you again for having me as well. Excited to be here and looking forward to a fun conversation. I said Reed Lutanen, Executive Director at the U.S. Faster Payments Council. Been in the payments industry now for coming up on 20 years. I started out at Walmart, a little retailer you guys might be familiar with out of Bentonville, Arkansas. So I spent time there with various payment acceptance roles and then an overarching payments acceptance strategy role for a number of years and then rolled over to the Faster Payments Council to become the executive director and CEO uh, about three years ago, almost exactly three years ago, actually today. And so the FPC, just really quickly, for those of you who might not be familiar with our work, is an an industry association. And we bring together all the different segments of the payments ecosystem to try to help drive the United States to safe, easy to use, ubiquitous, faster payments. So having those critical conversations around education awareness, but also over different key enablers and um, things that might catalyze adoption and usage of faster payments. So super excited to be here. Good forward to the conversation. Reed, I wanted to start with this. A lot has been written about how the battle for real-time payments is shaping up in the United States with RTP from the Clearinghouse and the Federal Reserve's Fed now, which is about to launch in 2023. What's been driving the need for real-time payments over the past few years? Fundamentally, what we're talking about here are payments that operate at the speed of today's digital economy, right? So if you think about all the other aspects of your life, whether it's communicating with people through email or text message or phone, the way we consume all kinds of media now is all on demand. And we expect to be able to watch whatever TV show we want, not when the network tells us it's on, 9 p.m. on Saturday or whatever. It's whenever we happen to decide we want to watch it, that's when we're going to watch it. So I think having payments that work that way too, right? So it's not about banker's hours being 24 or being, you know, nine to five Monday through Friday. It's 24-7, 365. 
It's not about batch and waiting till the next day for payments to move. It's about real-time movement of funds. So I think that's fundamental that's driving that adoption and driving the, the need for it. I mean, I agree. Like, I, I think that everything is, to your point, everything is completely real time. I mean, the, the TV thing resonates. My, my daughter doesn't even understand how TV works in a hotel. She's like, how do you get TV in a hotel to work the way that it does? Like, it doesn't work that way at home because we only watch Netflix. But it's kind of crazy. Like, I, and so why don't we have real time in, in all the markets, right? And I think the stuff that you guys are doing is, is really important to making that happen because everything's moving in real time and there's no reason for all of the the payments that we make and and everything is a payment right like every interaction that we have with a retailer when we jump in an uber whatever we do it's like there's always some sort of payment that's happening and it doesn't matter whether i'm paying or i'm getting paid like you kind of want all of that to be in real time and and i think this is like the step towards what we need to get to I know that in the United States, we're a little bit behind the curve when it comes to adoption of real-time payments. Reed, I'd love to get your thoughts on current adoption of it and sort of maybe what's working or what hasn't and why FedNow could be an answer to some of those challenges. There are a couple of things that the United States is doing maybe a little bit differently than our markets, and we're probably going to get to that in a little bit. But I think we've taken sort of private sector market-based approach, even though the Fed is government agency, they're going to be competing in this marketplace along with the clearinghouse and others uh, to offer instant payments. So what are the challenges? What's been holding things back? I think part of it has been a bit of a staring match. You look at folks who are saying, well, we don't know exactly what we want to do with this yet. We know it's going to be really important. I think part of it though, the bigger part is we haven't yet developed all the different user interfaces that are required for all the different transaction types that ultimately can be done through these networks, right? So you think about some of the user interfaces are, are relatively simple, say P2P, right? So you got Zelle and it's leveraging all these different networks and it's gained quite a bit of scale. But then you think about more complicated user experiences like point of sale in a retail store or e-commerce where there's a lot more moving pieces, a lot higher expectations in terms of the ease of use and the speed of a transaction occurring. And that's going to take time to build out and for everybody to get comfortable with making sure that they've got the right things in place when it comes to fraud, comes to the data elements that are associated with the transaction, and when it comes to the economics. Which of those elements do you think is like kind of holding us back the most though? Like, is it trying to figure out fraud? Is it trying to figure out the cost element? Like, because to your point, we do have competing networks out there. And I think FedNow is going to be able to change the game a lot. But which one of those elements is holding it back? <laughs> so uh, on my podcast, I do a segment called Buy or Sell, and I really hold people to like making them choose buy or sell. But I'm going to try to say both of them, see if you let me get away with it. <laughs> so, All right. And I, and I think for the answer, the reason for that is like the question around fraud is ultimately an economic question, right? So it's partially about how do you prevent fraud from happening, but understanding that there's going to be fraud. There's fraud on every payment system that's ever existed and there will be fraud on this one. So then it becomes a question of liability more than a question of the actual security of the transactions. And so I think that's part of an, un an unknown answer, right? So there's lots of conversations swirling around who's going to ultimately be liable for, any, for losses that do happen. And I think to a certain extent, the different economics on the FedNow pricing is slightly different than RTP. So there'll be some, some need to work through that as an industry too. Not that, that the FPC would necessarily engage in helping people figure out their pricing, right? That's up to the private actors to decide what they're going to charge for their price for their services. But that'll take some time to figure out what is the price that buyers are willing to pay and the, that sellers are willing to accept. 
I'm sure we'll dig into this a bit more in Shabon, but like I, I think like as we start talking about what it means from the economic standpoint also a lot of the big adoption we've seen in other markets has been related somewhat related to cost right so like i think that inherently like it'll be an interesting topic to kind of touch on i wanted to turn the conversation really briefly before we get to that to talk about where both of you are seeing where the opportunity really is i think we talked a little bit earlier about sort of the amazoning or the netflixing of finance. I was looking at a statistic that sort of blew my mind. Fintech Futures says that the real-time payment market growth is expected to reach 86 or almost 87 billion by 2028. And that's representing growth of about 32% from last year to 2028, which in my head is a pretty staggering figure. Reed, I'll start with you. What do you see as being the factors for this cause of growth? Is there an Amazon or a Netflix-like use case that is driving this? Or is there a particular industry that's driving this? I was just curious to to know what's driving that. I would expect a lot of that growth to come from a lot of different places. I think we're seeing so much more when it comes to payroll, for example. So, and not just in paying individuals the same way we have been probably wouldn't drive that kind of growth. But what we're seeing is a lot more frequent distribution of pay, whether that's uh, gig economy workers, but also uh, your more traditional hourly workers being paid at the end of every shift as opposed to every two weeks, right? So now you're saying, instead of paying somebody once over a period of 14 days, I'm going to pay them maybe 10 times over a period of 14 days. And so, you know, that's just huge organic growth of the volume in terms of the transactions that are being done there. I think bill pay is going to be one that comes on really quick. At least what we're also seeing is like things like payroll, things like allowing a lot of distributed employees to like spend company money or like pay pay different folks like i think like those are areas that we're seeing really really starting to take off so like i I think you're going to continue to see a need for real time in those areas because like people need to get paid fast right and or you want to pay a supplier really fast or you want to pay a contractor really fast like you just kind of i think it you need to do it it'll be interesting to see like some of the things that we see in some of these emerging markets like are we going to be able to improve like financial inclusion? Are we going to be able to think about how, like today, there's not a great way. To, when we start talking about payroll, there's not a really great way for people to get their money fast. And so then then you end up having like loan sharks and payday loans and all this other stuff. I think you can kind of start eliminating that. It'll be interesting though, because in emerging markets, there's definitely a bigger need for that. But I'm pretty sure, like to your point, I think that that number that Shabon quoted is probably less for the large supplier payments. And because as soon as you add that in, then it's a much bigger number than the 80 billion, right? So like, I, I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And I'm guessing like, as you guys think about this, it probably also follows that curve, right? Like initially you just wanna enable P2P, you wanna enable like these smaller payments that like just get people to start using it. And then, cause also bigger amounts, I'm assuming, like what we talked about in the beginning, like they cause more fraud or maybe they don't cause more fraud, but the consequence of fraud is is worse, right? So maybe that's why like, you know, you kind of stepwise. Is that how you guys are looking at it? Like a little bit more stepwise that way? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you say want, I definitely, I want to do it all, right? Like We want, <laughs> we want it all right now, right? We want to watch whatever yeah. show we want in the hotel room. But I think, yeah, I think that's a good way of thinking about it is like you have to sort of go along at the speed that everybody in the ecosystem is comfortable that that their interests are are sort of being met and that their needs are being met 
And there's a lot of different ways that we need to be looking at this, right? That's why we bring not just financial institutions and networks, but also the corporates and the consumer groups all together to have those critical conversations. Because I think if you're not looking at it from all those different angles, what feels like a slower process than you might prefer would potentially become uh, untenably slow if you have to sort of redo things as you're just like, oh, well, we didn't even think about how this affects the consumer. So yeah, super important. Do you think that one of those constituents is like pushing harder for real time? And is there anyone that's kind of skeptical, right? Like, cause you kind of hear from some in government where they go, do we really need this? But I don't know. Is it a political play? I guess my question to you is who wants it more? Is it fair for me to say that I think different folks want it for different reasons, right? So I think, or different use cases maybe is the way, a better way of thinking about it, right? So you think about looking at it from the financial institution perspective, I think there's huge desire to use this for certain use cases, right? They're excited about lending, for example, and being able to fund loans uh, in real time and maybe win more loans from, say, auto dealerships. Then uh, looking at it from the consumer angle, I think there's some skepticism from consumer advocate groups around what does the liability look like? Are there going to be like problems with people getting left with losing their entire balance because they made a mistake or because somebody hacked into their account and sent an irrevocable payment? And so figuring that piece out, but at the same time, and you made such a good point about financial inclusion. And I think that's a huge angle here and one that we have a work group at the Faster Payments Council looking into the financial inclusion angle here, because my view is that so much of what keeps people from choosing to be banked is that it goes back to what I said kind of at the beginning of the show, which is that payments haven't historically worked the way we might think they should in a 21st century economy. So that causes people to, you know, they made a mistake at some point and they, and they, they don't want to repeat that mistake, so they don't want to be banked, uh, whether that was, you know, overdrawing their account or whatever it might have been. The folks who are, I think, probably the most excited are the corporates, right? So looking at this, like, it seems like nothing but a win from their perspective, right? So I can control my funds better. I can get paid faster. Maybe it's less expensive. I can maybe have some better experiences for my customers. Really quick anecdote. I'm just kind of droning on here. But when I was at Walmart, the single biggest reason why a customer would call about a payment wasn't a payment that they're making to us. It was a refund that we were trying to give back to them. And it was taking longer than they thought it should. And it wasn't because we were Walmart was holding out of the money. It was just because it takes sometimes a long time for money to go from one point to another. We all know that as payments people, but your average consumer doesn't know that. And so you have one side who's willing to give the money back to the customer immediately. The other side wants it. That's a huge win, I think, for everybody. Completely agree. I think what will be interesting on the financial inclusion part is, and I don't, I don't know if you can even talk to it the, the, right now, like what the economics would be like, because doesn't that'll, that'll matter a lot in financial inclusion, right? I mean, who knows what the economics will look like? I think the the thing is, and we actually had a panel on financial inclusion that I did at Smarter Faster Payments Conference in Vegas in April. And we talked about the opportunity there for financial institutions to really grow organically and not have to try to get more out of their existing clients, try to win clients from other folks, right? So there's a huge potential opportunity there for financial institutions to win deposits and win customers. And so the, the economics of ultimately from the, for the consumer perspective might be the same as they are for folks who are currently banked, um, just because there's a win there for the financial institutions just in general. 
I wanted to turn our attention a little bit to what's going on globally, because we kind of touched on it, but I sort of wanted to tease that out a little bit. Robin, when talking about real-time payments globally, I know that you have a global perspective on what's going on versus just the United States. What have you seen that's worked in various markets around the world as you think of sort of the top 15 or 30 global markets that have adopted real-time payments. I think specifically of countries like Brazil, India, I know this is huge. Malaysia has had huge pickup in real-time payments. I'm just curious about what you've seen working and what's not. I think a lot of people use India as like the example because what they did with UPI was pretty impressive. I think it was probably also really scary for them. And it was, and people weren't sure how it was going to turn out. When you talk about Brazil, when you talk about India, I think they've seen a ton of pickup in terms of real-time payments on the schemes that they've kind of rolled out, right? Like, because if you think about where UPI is today, like pretty much if you're in India and you're paying for almost anything, you're using UPI on some level. And I think that that has been really, really impressive in terms of how they've done it. And I think that's like, you know, when, when, when I'm, I'm talking about the economics of it all, like they've kind of gotten to a place where it's essentially free, right? So like, I think that the, the question becomes, how do we think about doing it here? How do we get adoption? If you think about what happened with PICS in Brazil, like it happened during COVID and it was like a perfect, perfect moment for PICS to to kind of take hold. Listeners that don't know, like UPI PICS, Do It in Malaysia, Prompe in Thailand, they're all like real-time networks that exist in these markets. So it's different because when we look at Europe and we look at more countries that look more similar to the US in terms of where we are, I think that that's where like you have to figure out like how do you get the right adoption? How do you build a system that's going to allow us to do this in the right way? And I think that's what Reed and the team have been focused on, right? Like how do we how do we do this in the right way? In some of these emerging markets, we can see from our side, from the NEM side, right? Like when we send transactions in general, like real time is where almost everyone wants to send their transactions. Anytime we open up a real time corridor, you see the volume of transactions increase because the reality is if you are a tech company that's using our infrastructure, you kind of want to be able to provide that experience that money is moving as fast as possible through the routes that you have. But we're in a different place here than we are in emerging markets, right? Over there, you kind of have the ability to leapfrog past like some of the things that you might have had in the past. You know, like in India, as an example, you can, you can basically demonetize, get rid of all the bills that you had, open up like a new, completely new way of thinking about how you're going to look at digital money, how you're going to think about real-time money. We don't have the luxury of doing that, I mean, over here. And I think that's why it makes the job that Reed has, as well as like everyone else that's involved in this, a lot harder. So it'll be interesting and to kind of hear what you think, Reed, in terms of like, because I'm, I'm assuming you're using some of those as examples of how you drive adoption and like what you do right, or, or also like how you ensure that you don't make the mistakes that they've made. It's a different animal, I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. And I think I just want to circle back to a point you were kind of getting at, which is, I think we focus a lot on, for example, India. And I think this is true to the, as far as it goes, right? So in India, you look at, they have the UPI, which was sort of a government project, government-ish project, but they also had a QR codes that were made through a, a standard that they could all adopt. They have universal ID law, like they have all kinds of different things that sort of all sort of work as a suite together to sort of create that opportunity. But that's not really why it's been so successful 
things like this aren't pushed into a market because the technology becomes available. They're pulled by demand. And, and that's what's been happening in those markets like you talked about. They're, they were not being as adequately served as the US and Western Europe have historically been by payments, right? So I think there was a pull, there was more of a demand for them to succeed there. That being said, there is plenty of, and I think we talked about it earlier, there's plenty of demand here too. It's just maybe a little different and has to be sort of teased out a little bit. But I think, yeah, we're absolutely looking at what are they doing there that's working? What is, you know, maybe not worked? And I think, you know, the easiest example are some of the things that have been done around fraud prevention and around sort of helping educate as you're rolling this out to help customers and consumers understand the potential risks there, right? Because uh, the example I always point to is the Take 5 to Fight Fraud campaign in the UK, right? To help people like think like, hey, I need to pause and think about this and think about whether I know for sure that this is going to the person and they really do have the dog that I'm supposedly buying here. That was my next question, which is about, on the one hand, having payments move quickly is great, right? But there are some risks associated with it. I think of my 84-year-old father <laughs> trying to make payments and the trouble that he might get into. You know, a Zelle payment in the U.S. is super powerful. It's convenient. But what do we do if, you, if we make a mistake and who we send money to, a typo? Or what have we seen around identity and risk in other markets maybe that we might be able to learn from, Robin? And I think this is kind of what Reed was alluding to as well, right? Like, I think there's like, there's clearly areas that that we need to educate consumers and and people that are that are sending money to say like, hey, here's here's how you could get yourself into trouble. Like, I think in India, you've seen people getting fished in terms of, okay, well, I am this merchant or I am this person. Send me your money. And then once the money goes out, then then it's gone, right? I think what you see Brazil doing now a little bit more of, right? Because I think there has been a lot of fraud that's happened there. And then like they've also seen situations where back in the day when people would get kidnapped and take money out of the ATM, now they can just ask them to do a PIX transaction. But they, they've started implementing things like not allowing transactions that are X size to go through like at certain hours of the night because that seems suspect. They're looking at it from a centralized database perspective. So they're doing a better job of being able to figure out like where there might be bad actors. Inevitably, like as soon as you allow more players into the system, like you're going to have fraudulent merchants, you're going to have like people that are going to try to take advantage of, of certain things in the system, especially when it's it's hard to get your money back, right? So like once you make the mistake, then then there, it, it's tough to, to change it. But look, I, I think this is the way forward. I mean, that's why you're seeing so much adoption. That's why we're talking about this here. That's why all the countries around the world are, are talking about like, how do we get ourselves on real time? How do we operate amongst ourselves in real time? So like, this is the future. This is where it's heading. I think we just need to make sure that we don't put people, businesses, in a place where they're kind of putting their money at risk. And I think everyone's thinking of the right things. And it, there'll be some teething pains, but we'll we'll get there over time. Reed, given some of these challenges, what is Fed now contemplating to reduce some of those challenges that they've seen other markets having or things that, you know, other things that haven't yet happened? Fed now, RTP, what have you, I, I think the the focus for them is on how do they serve their users, which are generally speaking financial institutions, right? So how do they help those folks understand 
and get their minds around what are the risks that are here? Because at the end of the day, it's the folks who are touching the consumers and touching the end users who are going to have to make those calls and make put in place the different layers of security, authentication capabilities that will then ultimately protect the network layer in, in between. So I think I think from, from their perspective, it's probably mostly about how do we help educate the financial institutions, build things up for them that can be potentially useful for them in communicating with their clients and their customers. But ultimately, I would expect a lot more of that responsibility to come on sophisticated endpoints, whether those are financial institutions or corporates. Do you know anything about how identity will be handled, about sort of how identity verification will be handled on the network? And does that play into this at all? I would expect that the networks, both FedNow and RTP, are going to rely on financial institutions to authenticate the users using similar processes to what they use today for online banking and and other uh, treasury portals and things like that. Robin, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Reed sort of mentioned it, right, that on identity in places like India, you can start from scratch and you can you, you can have like a single identity that you're going to use across the board. But then it's like it's a different mandate, right? Like and I, and I think the way that we're going to do it here is really the only way that you can do it here, right? Like I, I don't think you could you, you can't go you can't flip the system upside down the way that it was done in India. It was possible there and it was almost needed. But like I don't we're not at that place, right? Because we're in a different situation than than some of these emerging markets. So, so I think that makes sense. What are each of you most looking forward to seeing change in in twenty twenty three or in the next five years? Anything that you're hoping to learn or curious to see play out as some of these big launches and integrations roll out this year? I'm excited that we're having this conversation right now because I think that everyone. Everyone in the payments industry, right? <laughs> Maybe not everyone in real life, but at least everyone in the payments industry has been looking forward to to kind of seeing the rollout of FedNow and seeing what it means because I, I think everyone recognizes that there's a lot of value to it. I think especially in the last five years, we've seen a huge adoption. We've already talked about the benefits that you get out of real time. So I think in the next year or so, it'll be really great to see how that starts and starts getting some adoption. And then I think in the next five years, it'll be really interesting to see how we start talking about interoperability across real-time networks throughout the world. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely starting to see more and more of those proof of concepts around cross-border transactions between different real-time payment networks. I think the next year is probably pretty aggressive for anything like that at scale, right? But I think that's definitely like the next frontier and something that, again, we have a work group working on cross-border payments at the Faster Payments Council, if anybody's interested in, in trying to help lead the way there. I'd say for me, for my money, the thing that I'm like most excited to see, I think over the next 12 to 18 months is how do we identify new ways to really leverage not just the speed of these payments, but also the enhanced ability to transmit information and other and data along with them in the structured way that the ISO 2022 messaging allows. I think there's untapped potential there, even in our like hypotheticals, like there's, there's untapped potential for what we can do with what is essentially a 21st century communications network that also moves money. What's possible there is pretty exciting. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Gentlemen, It has been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Good to connect with you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, same. Thanks, guys. That is all the time that we have today. I want to say thank you so much to Robin and Reed for being with us and sharing their insight into the revolution in real-time payments. On this show, we're investigating the real driving forces that are modernizing money movement and what's building or blocking its momentum around the world. Make sure you're subscribed. 
Check us out at neom.com slash forward exchanges or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a review and tell us what you like. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Siobhan O'Neill-Schwenk, and this has been Forward Exchanges from Neom.